Amen. Praise the Lord. I want you to turn your Bibles tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've been uh, talking about the Holy Ghost in these uh, Wednesday night services for a number of weeks. And we are in the middle of uh, talking about the nine manifestations of the Spirit. Verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Notice the word gifts is in italics. We've made this uh, uh, point and statement before, but I think it bears repetition. Literally, this would read from the Greek, now concerning spirituals. The word spiritual is in the plural. I would not have you ignorant. Well, most people wouldn't understand what that means. Specifically, by definition, the word spirituals means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. So he's saying that the Holy Ghost is telling us through the Apostle Paul that God doesn't want us ignorant of things pertaining to the Holy Ghost. I would submit to you that that's one of the greatest areas of ignorance in the church body. And if God didn't want them ignorant about things pertaining to the Holy Ghost, he wouldn't want us to be ignorant either, would he? So he goes on to say, you know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healings by the same Spirit. In the original, uh, there are three times where uh, gifts of healings are referred to by Paul in this letter to the Corinthians. And every time in the original, both gifts and healings are in the plural. So he says, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one in the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Paul gives us a list of nine ways that the Holy Ghost manifests himself. Now, of this list of nine, three of them reveal something. The word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, and discerning of spirits reveal something to us. Three of them say something. Prophecy, diverse kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. And three of them do something or are filled with power. Those are the gift of faith. One translation, I think is Weymouth's translation, says special faith, gifts of healings, and working of miracles. Well, we're talking about the power gifts of the Spirit tonight. I'd like to uh, talk to you specifically about the gift of faith or special faith and uh, the working of miracles. To be real honest with you, these are two of the toughest ones for me as far as examples in Scripture. And the reason why is because they both result in miracles. Now, the Bible identifies or defines a miracle. Literally, the word that's used throughout the Scripture is the word powers. So, of course, it's talking about God's explosive power. But miracles specifically mean divine, divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. Well, we don't generally use that definition when we're talking about miracles. And what I mean by that is when people talk about miracles in everyday language. For example, we talk about miracle detergents, miracle fabrics, a miraculous sunset or sunrise or things like that. But the Bible, when it speaks of miracles, is speaking very specifically. It doesn't speak of it generally like we sometimes do. 
it talks specifically about God's divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. Now, the gift of faith, or special faith, is a measure of faith, a manifestation of the Spirit, a supernatural manifestation that brings a measure of faith that's beyond anything you could develop on your own. See, these all have to be supernatural if they're from God and if it's the work of the Holy Ghost because everything God does is supernatural. Now, working of miracles, as I said, uses the definition of divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. And so working of miracles would be a manifestation of the Holy Ghost that would cause that divine intervention to, to suspend the laws of nature. Now, gift of faith is a passive manifestation of the Spirit. What I mean by that is it receives the miracle. But working of miracles is where somebody is in, in, uh, inspired or impressed upon by the Holy Ghost to do something that brings about a miracle. And since they both result in miracles, that's why it's sometimes hard to tell. Let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, it talks about Daniel being framed by others that are jealous. And so he's thrown into the lion's den. Well, the Bible says that he believed God. And in the morning when the king came to find out how he was, the king was tricked into this thing too, forced into doing something toward Daniel that he didn't want. When the king came the next morning, Daniel said, I'm fine. Everything went well. Now, Samson, on the other, other hand, encountered a lion, but by the power of God, the explosive power of God, tore it by its jaws. Well, both of them were deliverance from lions, deadly lions. Both lives were preserved, but they were preserved in different ways. For Daniel, his must have been the gift of faith or special faith. Now, I don't know how you could identify or how you could ever receive um, by ordinary faith, what we might call ordinary faith or simple faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the word, how are you going to come up with enough faith to, to um, come out of the lion's den without any harm? It had to be a, a, a manifestation of the Holy Ghost because there's no scripture that you can find that would give you that kind of confidence. Samson, on the other hand, was one endowed with power in a variety of ways, and it showed up, in this case, to rip the lion apart by his jaws. So they both resulted in miracles. But just as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there are diversities of operations. Some things work different ways in different people or at different times to come about with the same result. Now let's talk about several of them. We won't turn to a lot of scripture. I'm going to take for granted that you know some of the stories that are referred to and feel free to look up any of these um, that you want to to see more completely for yourself. But for example, in First Corinthians or First Kings, rather, chapter 17, it says Elijah comes out of nowhere on the scene, and he tells the wicked king of Israel, King Ahab, he said it's not going to rain again until I say so. Now he's operating, of course, in the office of a prophet. He is a prophet. And so this is an operation of the gift of faith. It has to be an operation of the gift of faith. Because how could anybody on their own faith, or how could they develop their own faith to the point where they think they can control the weather? So he's got to have something, some manifestation of the Holy Ghost. He's got to have some uh, information from God about God's plan and purpose to stand up and make that claim. Now, as soon as he does that, the famine, of course, starts 
It turns out to be a real severe thing. It lasts for about three and a half years. And the Lord spoke to him and told him to get to a certain place in the wilderness. There's a certain brook, a stream of water. And God says to him, go to this certain place, for I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Now, folks, ravens are scavengers. They don't bring and deliver food. But it says that's what Elijah did. He went into the wilderness, and it says that the, the ravens fed him two meals a day, morning and night. But then the brook dried up. Then the Lord spoke to Elijah and said, Go to Zarephath, for I have ordained for a widow woman to sustain you. Well, when Elijah gets there, no matter what he thinks or what he expects, when he gets there, he finds a woman that's gathering two sticks to make a fire. Now, folks, you don't make much of a fire with two sticks. But she, her task was to get these two sticks, gather two sticks to make a fire and a little cruise, uh, or a little, um, bake a little piece of bread for her and her son. And that was all they had. They are going to die. And so Elijah told her, well, that's all well and good, but make me something first. Which sounds pretty harsh. But remember, the Lord has already told him what's going to happen. And so he told her, make something for me first. And you remember the end of the story that throughout the rest of the, the famine, that meal barrel didn't waste. She didn't run out. And that cruise of oil, however small it was, kept pouring oil more and more and more until the end of the drought period. Now, where are you going to get faith for that? And remember, all faith is the same. It works the same. There may be different measures in different proportions, but it always works the same. And that is, faith comes by hearing the word of God. What Elijah heard was specific to him and his situation and the ministry that God had for him. But it was still information that came from God that he was able to stand upon and hold steady no matter what. Now, there are other situations, many other situations where gifts of healing, or I'm sorry, where working of wisdom, I'll get it right in a minute, for working of miracles and the gift of faith were in operation. Moses is a good example. You remember when God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. There were 10 plagues that took place. And each one of those took place at Moses' instruction. You remember also when God was talking to him at the burning bush. He asked him what he had in his hand. Moses was questioning how is Pharaoh going to listen to me. He doesn't know me. He's not impressed by me. This is not the Pharaoh that he grew up in, in, uh, with or that was acquainted with him. And so God asked him a simple thing. He said, what's in your hand? And Moses said, a stick. He said, throw it down. Well, when he did, it turned into a snake, and Moses ran away from his stick. But the Lord spoke to him and told him to grab it by the tail, and it became a stick again. Almost every one of the, the uh, plagues that took place in Egypt took place as a result of Moses doing something with that rod. That rod became the symbol of God's power. For example, when Moses struck the dust, it turned into lice. Well, how does that work? Obviously, that's a miracle. And I mean miracle in the strictest sense, in the Bible sense. There's a divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. When Moses stretched out his rod over the, the Nile River, and it turned to blood. He's working a miracle at the direction of God. 
Now, when all these things take place, when all these ten plagues take place and end with the death of the firstborn, that's when Pharaoh relents and says to Moses, take your people and get out of here. But then he changes his mind. He's so grieved over the death of his own son that he decides that he's going to go out after Israel and kill them all. You remember the situation? They had mountains on one side, mountains on another side, the Red Sea in front of them, and Pharaoh's armies behind them. And the people see that the military of the disadvantageous situation that they're in, and they cry unto Moses. And Moses says the right thing. He says, don't worry about it. God will take care of us. God will see us through. But then he turns around to God, and God says, what are you crying to me for? It's always looked to me like the perfect situation to cry out unto God. But God was trying to tell him something. He was trying to show us something. He said, stretch forth your rod and divide the waters. Well, now, if God had told Moses, don't worry, just stand there. Tell the people to watch and see how my power operates. If then the Red Sea had parted, then we could say that Moses could have been operating in a gift of faith or in the gift of faith or by special faith. But the fact that God had Moses do something to bring it about shows us that working of miracles is what took place in Moses and in his life and in his ministry. Now, it makes sense when you think about it and and understand it in these terms. God certainly wanted the people to respond to him and to, to reverence him and his power. That was the whole purpose of the ten plagues, for the children of Israel to realize God's on our side. But he also wants to exalt Moses in their eyes too. Because as the leader of the children of Israel, to lead them to the promised land, and as it turned out, beyond for another 40 years, God is very interested to show that Moses, Moses is his man. And so working of miracles certainly proved that and certainly brought about that result. We see other working of miracles, uh, opera, uh, instances of working of miracles in Moses in the wilderness when he gets to a certain place and there's no water. He strikes the rock and enough water for millions of people and their animals and everything they've got with them is supplied. Well, Moses is the one that struck the water, struck the rock so that water came out. God's certainly the one that performed the miracle, but he did it at Moses' hands or by Moses' actions. Now, there are a number of other things. One of the things that, uh, that's interested me greatly over the years is uh, Smith, Smith Wigglesworth's explanation of the gift of faith. Now he was a man, an Englishman preacher, didn't have much education at all, just really a primary education. But God used him in some miraculous ways. Miracles were a, a staple in his ministry. He was called and considered to be the apostle of faith because that's the way he claimed to do anything and everything for, uh, of God or the, the powers and the miracle works of God. He claimed to, to be doing them by faith. And he had several people, there are differing accounts of how many, but he had several people that were raised from the dead in his ministry. Now, certainly, folks, you'd have to realize that the raising of the dead would have to include the, the gift of faith or special faith. It probably also includes the working of miracles. It may also include gifts of healings, because even if you raise somebody from the dead, whatever sickness they died of, they'd die again right away. So there has to be a combination of of two, maybe three, of the power gifts in operation to raise the dead. And Wigglesworth told of certain accounts. He related uh, uh, three different accounts 
of when somebody was raised from the dead. And he said of one of these accounts, he said, I penetrated heaven with my prayer, and the answer was no. He used his own faith as far as it would go. And he said, by his own faith, what he was trying to, to get to take place, he said the answer was no. But then he said this. He made this other comment. He said, but then there was a faith that came down from heaven that wouldn't take no for an answer. From that, he began to say about the gift of faith, he said, the gift of faith is when God honors your words as his own. Now, you'd have to know the plan and the purpose of God in order to step in that place, wouldn't you? I mean, God wouldn't be obligated towards you or me or anybody else to just casually perform or do whatever we said. But if we're speaking by a revelation of God's plan and purpose, then the gift of faith would certainly be a welcome operation where God could honor our words as his own. By that, I simply mean God gives you words to speak and then honors them as if he spoke them. Well, we can see that in operation in the beginning of creation where God said and things were. God's creative power can be duplicated or can be accessed. I'm not sure which the best way is to say that, but can be accessed by this special manifestation of faith. So when... Wigglesworth talked about, and he used some of the same terminology. The situations were different. But there were other times where people were raised from the dead. One time in particular that he wasn't concerned about it at all. Everybody was going nuts because this young person had died. And Wigglesworth just simply walked in, grabbed them by the armpits, stood them against the wall and commanded them to walk. He turned loose and the body fell down onto the floor. So he reached down, grabbed them by the armpits again, stood them up, commanded them to walk in Jesus' name. And they slid down into the floor. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but at that point, I might be wondering what's, what's up. But the third time, he got this young person by the armpits, lifted them up and told them to walk, and they began to cough, and they returned to life. People asked Wigglesworth about that later. Were you concerned he said, no, not at all. I knew what was going to happen. So th from that, as I said, the, the, the definition or one of the things that were said about the gift of faith is when God honors your words as his own. Now, there are more cases, more instances in the Old Testament of special faith or working of miracles. But in the New Testament, there are many more examples of gifts of healings than the other two. Healings seem to be magnified or emphasized under the new covenant where miracles were emphasized under the old. Now, we know of a couple of miracles that Jesus performed. The Bible tells us about the first miracle that he performed was at the wedding in Cana of Galilee where he turned water into wine. Now, remember, miracles is defined as divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. If you add grape juice and water over time, it will naturally, it becomes a natural process where it will turn into wine. But Jesus turned water into wine without any, any semblance of grapes or anything else. So you could well understand that that would be a miracle. You could well understand that that would be a working of miracle because Jesus turned the water into wine. 
He didn't sit back and receive a miracle. He turned the water into wine. Now, one thing I do want to show you real quickly is turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. Let's look at one of the miracles that Jesus performed that we're acquainted with. I'm going to start in verse 21 just for you to see the context. It said, And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. So this is the feeding of the 5,000. Immediately after that, it tells us in verse 22, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be you, bid me come unto you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he was saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. Now I want you to notice a couple of things about this, folks. Obviously Jesus is participating or taking advantage of divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. The ordinary course of nature would be to sink, not walk on the water. Now what enabled him to walk on the water? Was it the gift of faith or special faith? Or was it working of miracles? I think you can make an argument both ways. But let's assume for a minute that it was the gift of faith, special faith. I'm really inclined to believe that it was that, that way rather than working of miracles. But if it was special faith, a special manifestation of faith, a Holy Ghost manifestation taking place here, I want you to realize that that gift of faith that spoke to Peter and said, come, wasn't able to overcome Peter's doubt and unbelief when he got out there and saw the wind and felt the waves. We, can't, we certainly can't say that Peter was operating in the gift of faith because if he had been operating in the gift of faith, he wouldn't have sunk. And Jesus asked, remember his question, he said, Why, wherefore didst thou doubt? O thou little faith, wherefore did you doubt? So whatever this manifestation of the Spirit that Jesus is working under, probably special faith, I guess, it wasn't enough to overcome Peter and the doubt that he got himself into because of the circumstances. Now look with me over to Mark chapter 6. I want you to see Mark's account of this. Mark chapter 6, again in verse 44, they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men. So it's the same context, same story from a little different point of view, but still the same incident. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when evening was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking on, upon the sea, and would have passed them by. Now notice some things that Mark tells us about that, that Matthew didn't. It says that Jesus saw them rowing. 
He saw them in distress out in the middle of the water. How did he see them? It says on the fourth watch of the night, he went walking on the water. It also, interestingly, says that he would have passed them by. He would have left them to their own devices. But how did he see them? He's not out there in the middle of the sea yet. That doesn't take place until the fourth watch of the night. So when it says he saw them toiling or struggling because of the storm, I see in that at least the possibility of divine revelation. That's not too hard to accept, is it? He saw them toiling and rowing for the ship, for the wind was contrary to the ship. So he starts walking on the water. It says he would have passed them by, but one of them cried out. We'll pick up the story in verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and said unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship. And the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Notice that last phrase. They considered not the miracle of the loaves. They didn't understand what the feeding of the 5,000 was all about. Now, folks, just a little bit of... Um, historical controversy here concerning this incident who is mark he's not one of the disciples he's one of the, he's barnabas's nephew that we first find over in the book of acts and you may remember that the first missionary journey paul and barnabas took they took together and john mark went with them he's called john mark there not just mark but it's the same guy and apparently something happened Things got too tough for him during the middle of the missionary journey, so John Mark turned back, and Paul and Barnabas kept going. Well, the next time they decided to take a ministry trip, Paul and Barnabas I'm talking about, when they planned to go on the second missionary journey, Barnabas, the encourager, wants to take Mark with him again. But Paul won't have anything to do with it. He said he deserted us once. That's it. One chance for Paul, and you're out. And so the contention became so sharp, so strong, that Paul and Barnabas separated company. Now, folks, that's always seemed to me to be the biggest tragedy of the book of Acts. Because God put them together. Remember in Acts, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord said, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to do. If you were Paul or if you were Barnabas, would you have let anything get in the way of that relationship? I certainly wouldn't. Now, it was certainly to Mark's advantage that Paul and Barnabas disagreed. Because later in Paul's life, in the last letter that he wrote to Timothy from prison, facing execution, he said, bring Mark with you, for he's profitable unto me in the ministry. Well, how did he become profitable to Paul? Certainly wasn't by anything Paul did to develop him. But apparently, Barnabas stuck with him. And as a result, he grew up, he matured, and he became a worthwhile disciple and a ministry helper. Now, one of the things that we know from historical documents is that Mark spent a lot of time traveling with Peter. And so it is supposed, and, and you make a good argument for it, I don't know that we can identify without a shadow of a doubt, but you can make a good argument that the book of Mark is Mark's account of Peter's preaching. 
Nobody would know Jesus better and have a better account of things that happened other than Peter unless it was John himself. And so the book of Mark tells us about Jesus walking on the water, but it omits the part about Peter sinking. Well, if I was Peter and I was out preaching the story, I'd leave that part out. I would reason that it doesn't matter, it doesn't add anything to it. The important thing is that Jesus walked on the water, and I'd have left it at that. But back to that last phrase in verse uh, 52. They considered not the miracle of the, of the loaves. What was the working of miracles that took place when Jesus fed the 5,000? What was that supposed to mean? What was the purpose of that? If we read a little bit further, we'd find that when the people see Jesus and understand that he's on the other side of the sea from where they left him yesterday or last night, Jesus upbraids them. They ask him, how'd you get here? We don't see another ship. Jesus didn't stop and say, I walked on the water. He didn't try to identify or influence, in, uh, influence them in any way because of the miracles or by the miracles that took place the night before. He says something, you're, uh, something to the effect of this. He says, you're not even here for the teaching. You're just looking for another free meal. So what was the miracle of the loaves and the fishes all about? Folks, it shows us. It was intended to, to, to show them, and it is intended to show us that by the name of Jesus, according to the word of God, the power of God will suspend even the very laws of nature. Jesus took five loaves and two fishes and wound up feeding 5,000 people and had 12 basket full, baskets full of leftovers. The multiplication is to show that God is not limited by the laws of nature. It was supposed to identify to us that God, he, God, is perfectly willing to intervene to suspend or overcome natural physical laws. And the same thing took place when Jesus reached the ship. When he got to, to him in both accounts, it says the wind ceased or the storm stopped. And they found themselves at the other side. Now there were other, kind, other places and other situations where Jesus commanded storms to be still. You remember when Jesus said to them on one occasion, he said, let's go to the other side. He's talking about the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he went in the back part of the ship and fell asleep. Well, while he was asleep, a storm arose. And the disciples were concerned because they were taken on water. And so somebody says, go wake up Jesus. Certainly you want to be awake when you die from being capsized or drowning in the sea, don't you? So he, they woke up Jesus, and Jesus stood up and said, why are you so fearful? Where is your faith? Apparently, Jesus told them enough to where he intended or he expected what he said to create faith on the part of the, the hearers. Well, what did he say? The only thing we have record of is he said, let's go to the other side. I guess that means when God says, let's go to the other side, he doesn't intend for you to drown in the middle. But then Jesus spoke to the storm and said, peace, be still, and the storm stopped. Now, some would say, I don't know if I agree with this completely. I certainly see the possibility, but again, I don't know for sure. I know that we can make a, a definitive point out of it. But some said that Jesus went to sleep by the gift of faith. And was sleeping through the storm by the gift of faith. 
I don't know that I can, can agree with that completely. But we do see other situations where things are similar. For example, when Peter is taken captive by the Jews, the night before he's supposed to and be, being scheduled for execution, he goes to sleep in the prison. And the angel appears to deliver him, and the angel has to kick him in the side and tell him to get up. That's a pretty deep sleep, wouldn't you think? And that pretty deep sleep is just before the day that he's supposed to be killed. Just before his execution. Now, I, I think we have to consider the possibilities here. Would we be able to sleep if that was scheduled for us? We do have record that God said to, that Jesus said something to Peter about his death. He said to Peter that when he was old, people would take him where he didn't want to go, indicating an imprisonment. So could it be, I think yes, but you decide for yourself, could it be that Peter recognized that he wasn't old yet and that Jesus had told him what his old age would be like? That's certainly possible. And if you couple that with some things that we have already uh, talked about and spoken about concerning the rest or the peace that comes on somebody, at least according to Wigglesworth's testimony, about knowing that God will take care of the things that you've stood in faith to, to overcome or to bring into, path, bring into being. If you take that into consideration, then what would shake you if you were operating in the gift of faith? If you had special faith... What would be enough to shock you or turn you away from it? Jesus stilled the storm. But remember when Paul was on the road, or was on his journey, the voyage to Rome. Paul endured the storm based on what God had told him several different times. One about going to Rome and must, it's being, it was important for him to see Caesar. In Rome, what if Paul died on the way that he wouldn't be there to do what Jesus said that he was supposed to do, would he? But then also there was an angel that appeared to him after two weeks of storms that were so severe that the, the professional sailors were giving up hope. The angel appeared to him and told him what would take place. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So that created in Paul in my estimation at least, that he had grounds to stay steady and to stay calm no matter what things looked like. The angel told him that he would not be killed by this and that if the people would stick with him, nobody's life would be lost. Well, you'd have to have revelation from God according to his plan and his purpose to, to be able to stand steady in the middle of that, wouldn't you? And that's exactly what God gave him. So you've got Jesus speaking to the storm, and it ceased. And you've got Paul riding out the storm. Now, both were miraculous results. One received the miracle, and the other performed the miracle. Now, there are a lot of other cases, a lot of other situations. The Old Testament prophets, for example, we've mentioned a few in Elijah and Elisha. But working of miracles was in great prominence in the Old Testament prophet. You remember the last day that Elijah was on the earth. He and Elisha are headed toward a certain place. Elisha doesn't know where they're going. Elijah has a, an appointment with God. He knows this is his last day. He knows that he's going to be taken up into heaven. 
And so there were several occasions, several places that they came to on their journey where Elijah tells Elisha, stay here. You don't have to come with me. And Elisha won't do it. And there were others, sons of the prophets as they were called, that spoke to Elisha and said, do you know that your, your master is leaving the earth? And Elisha answered in, in both cases where somebody said that to him. He said, I know, hold your tongue. Don't be worried about it. I've got it taken care of. And so finally they come to the last place. Oh, I, I should add this to it. When Elijah says to Elisha, don't go with me, Elisha says that I won't leave you no matter what. So finally when they get to the, a certain place where they have to cross the river, Elijah takes his mantle, which must have been some kind of little cloak or animal skin covering or something. He takes that mantle and he slaps the water and the waters divide. And so they go on over to the other side and Elijah tells him again, you need to go. And Elisha says, I'm not leaving you. You're going to have to kill me to get rid of me, in effect. And so he asks him, he says, what do you want? And Elisha answers, I want a double portion of what's on you. And Elijah answers, you've asked for a hard thing, but if you see me when I go, you can have it. Now, the hard thing doesn't mean that it would be hard for God. The hard thing means that it's going to be hard for Elisha because there's a cost with carrying the things of God and for standing in a place where the power of God is manifest in you in great degree. Well, all of a sudden, the angel shows up in a chariot of fire. Elijah jumps on board, and they are taken up into heaven. And Elisha sees all this. He witnesses all this, just like Elijah told him he would have to. And so the mantle falls down back to the earth as Elijah, as Elijah disappears. And then Elisha takes the mantle, wraps it up just like Elijah had, and he slaps the river and it parts just like it did for Elijah. Well, here's the working of miracles, but the working of miracles is based on, is contingent on in these two cases, the mantle of the prophet. Now, there were other cases of working of miracles in the Old Testament as well. You remember when Elijah uh, came on the scene, there was somebody that was using a borrowed axe head in some building operation that they had and the axe head fell off of the handle and went into the water you remember what Elijah did about what Elijah did about that he took a stick and he threw it into the water and the iron axe head floated up to the surface now he did something to bring that about now I don't think it has to make sense of what he did because there's no way throwing sticks in the water to make axe heads float but he did something. He took action, and the result was a miracle. So when you talk about the, the gift of faith or special faith, as opposed to the working of miracles, it's not always the easiest thing to tell which one it is. But the important part is that they both produce the miracle working power of God. God is a God of miracles. He's always been a God of miracles. Some people say the age of miracles has passed. Folks, miracles has never been an age. Miracles have been a byproduct of the, our Heavenly Father, the creator of the universe. What about Elijah calling fire down from heaven to consume the sacrifice? You remember at, uh, while, right at the tail end of the three years of famine, he calls for there to be a contest between Baal, the God that 
Ahab and his wife are serving and the real God. You remember how they did it? The contest was the God that answers by fire would be worshipped as the real God. And so the prophets of Baal took everything that that, uh, Elijah had set up, the altar that he had set up, and they start crying out to Baal and jumping around and doing all kinds of stupid and crazy things to the point where Elijah even starts mocking them, making fun of them. He starts saying things like, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe this is the wrong time of day to contact him. He even says in one place, maybe he's in the bathroom and he can't hear you. And after a while, after cutting themselves with stones and doing all sorts of goofy stuff, which the devil always makes people do if, he'll, if he can, if they'll let him. Then Elijah said, all right, you've had your chance. Now it's my turn. So he rebuilds the altar. He puts the wood on the fire. He gets the sacrifice just in the right place, just in the right manner. He commands them, the people standing around, to dig a trench around the altar. And then he takes the most precious commodity on the face of the earth during that three years of famine and tells them to soak soak down the sacrifice, soak the wood that's going to be used as the fire underneath the sacrifice. It tells us that so much water was used that it drained out into the trench that he commanded to be dug. And then he says a simple prayer. I love this prayer of Elijah. He said, now, Lord, show them that you're the one true God creator of heaven and earth, deliverer from our enemies, and that I've done these things at your word. And instantly fire falls from heaven. It consumes the sacrifice. It vaporizes the wet wood. It vaporizes the water in the trench. And it even vaporizes the stone that they used to build the altar. There's not, not much contest going on anymore. Now, what did Elijah do? Was it the gift of faith or was it working of miracles? Well, he certainly had a lot to do with it. There were things that he did. But that one phrase where he said, show them, Lord, that I'm your servant and I've done these things at your word. That may indicate the gift of faith. As you can see, there are a lot of these situations where there's not an an easy answer or a definitive answer of whether it is the gift of faith or special faith or if it's the working of miracles. But the end result's always the same, and that is we have a miracle-working Father, the God of the universe, the God of miracles, is our Heavenly Father. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for all your goodness and your mercy toward us. We thank, of the, uh, thank you for the unlimited power that you displayed toward us and on our behalf when you raised Jesus from the dead. Father, we thank you that you're the same now as you've always been. You are God. You change not. Therefore, Father, we thank you for miracles. We thank you for special faith. We thank you for all the manifestations of the Spirit to be in operation as you will, not as we will, Lord, and not for our own benefit, but to help others. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading us and guiding us into the reality of these manifestations. We want to be a church that shows forth the miracle-working power of God, again, not for our benefit, not to make a name for ourselves, but to bring people out of impossible situations, to reveal you to them, Lord, in every situation, in every case, to be the God that's more than enough. Father, I thank you that as we, even as Paul told us by the Spirit of God, as we 
learn to desire these things, not as individuals but as a church body, to desire these things for your glory, not for ours. We thank you, Father, for manifesting the Holy Ghost among us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Folks, we serve a miracle-working God. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.